All right. Hello, Scott. What is up? Hey, not much. Thanks for having me. Of course. Today I have Scott Elton on. Scott Elton is one of my longest friends. He's one of my closest friends. I might even call him my bromigo, as we like yes, to say. Yes, of course. I think Scott is a very interesting guy and a very productive guy, so I'm very excited to have him on. I think we could have some interesting conversations. I agree. <clears throat> awesome. Yeah. So the first thing I wanted to ask is I feel like out of all my friends, you're one of the most, I would say, kind of financially literate and like just kind of like future literate like you seem very like you know what to do not what to do with your life but just like how to go about it so i was just curious like right. how do you think you learn this stuff and why do you think you're this way yeah um that's a really great question i uh, a lot of people that i meet typically say the same thing about me they're like you always have things planned out you always know how to play the game and that really is just what I try to learn is how to play the game that we call life. You know, if you uh, if you look at the board game life, you know, you there's no really easy way of winning that game. It's all probability, right? But the way that we can scale the lives that we're living now is through two things, education and skill. Those are the two things that drive what you can do and how you can be successful at what you do. So what I try to do to really plan out my future and really understand how to be financially literate or financially free is I look at how other people who are playing the game and winning that game are doing that. And there's a really good book that I'm reading right now that perfectly explains how the millionaires in the United States today are playing the financial game and earning the money that they're making today and a lot of it comes through planning and making sure that they're not overspending. A lot of it's spending and budgeting, um, but also just being smart with your money, saving your money, and investing your money. Um, so those are just some of the few ways that I learned through like financial routes on how to ha attain the same wealth that the millionaires do. It's really simple, but a lot of people overcomplicate it because they think it's too good to be true. Like there's no way that I could just make my money, make more money, you know? But it's because a lot of people don't understand the why behind it and how these systems work. And so what I've been trying to do just ever <clears throat> since I was in high school was learn how the money system works and how we can use our um, our debt uh, in, a, in a good way to get a positive cash flow. Interesting. So based on what you've learned so far then, how do you view like how the money system works? So I think the money system in America is very complicated, um, not as much as it was a long time ago. Um, but what you got to understand about the money system in the United States is on every bill that you look at, it always says that it's like a uh, reserve note, right? So basically what that's stating is that this is a certificate of debt, meaning that with this certificate of debt, you can go off and pay off debt, right? So if I can take this, say, $5 bill, right, and pay off a debt to Strad, right, by paying off debt to you, now I've lost that note, right? But if I can go and Wait, I real can quick, take, and what do you mean by paying off debt? It could be anything. It could be um, I have to pay you for a service that you provided me. I have to pay my college tuition. I have gotcha. to pay you know, for gas, all that stuff is maybe not in the, maybe not in the moment a debt, 
but you are going to need that at some point. Is, and so you're using your certificate of debt saying, this is what's going to get me out of this, right? This is how I'm going to pay for whatever good or service I need. So would debt be anything that like you, you use a service or something that you just don't pay for right away, but you're going to have to pay for eventually? Yeah, it could be. You know, because the interesting thing is with um, with money is we've moved a long way from the gold standard in the United States. We don't trade and barter like we used to. You know, before, <clears throat> if I had something that you needed and you had something that I needed, we would be able to trade back and forth, right? And I'd be able, I'd be able to say, well, Strad, you know, I have, you know, three chickens that I want to trade for you if you can, you know smelt me a nice sword right um but in america it's we're, we're trading services and goods still but now we have that note instead so oh, it's a universal standard because in a modern world with so many resources if you've got unlimited amount of one resource and i got unlimited amount of the same resource there's gonna be nothing that we can really trade between us so that's when the United States moved away from the gold standard and established a form of currency so that you could be able to go out and purchase and, you know, trade yeah. these notes between all sorts of different services and goods. Gotcha. So going back to what I was originally saying is yeah. because it says it's a certificate of, of debt, right? It's basically the government is rewarding you for a service or a good and you use that to pay off your debts, Right. So if you and me are working hard, right, we're giving our labor to a company, that company is providing a, you know, capitalistic good or service to the United States. So they're getting paid, they're paying you, you take that money, but who are you paying first? Are you just dumping your money right back into somebody else's services and goods that you need? Or are you taking that money and you're dumping it into you? So I always tell people that one of the biggest investments that you can make is yourself and your money. So by investing in yourself, that could be education, by listening to books, you know, buying books, buying podcasts, buying resources that are going to teach you how to invest and how to become smarter and understand the game and the system. And also investing in your money, meaning take your money, put it aside, take 20% of your income every month, put it aside. Let that build up so that you have a reserve, a financial reserve, and take the financial reserve and use it to pay into your different investments. Interesting. And where exactly are you putting this 20%? So you're, you're putting your 20% of your income in what's called your financial reserve vehicle. Okay. So your financial reserve vehicle is typically going to be, um, it could be your savings account, but the issue with being a savings account is the ROI um, on a savings account because the interest is so low isn't going to be very high. So they always urge that you take that 20% income and put it into something that's going to build you a higher ROI. So it could be like a life insurance policy. Uh, you could store your money in a life insurance policy. Those can be a little bit complicated. I'm still learning about those myself. But um, if you open up like a life insurance savings account, basically you put the money into your life insurance savings account it has an interest that it creates, right? So your money's making more money, but you're able to borrow against your life insurance savings account off your cash value. So you take out of your cash value, and now what you have is you have that cash value still stands in your life insurance savings account, but 
you are also using that. Say you take a loan out of your life insurance savings account and you put that into your next investment, which is going to be your um, your financial your next financial investment vehicle, and say that's real estate, right? So you take $20,000 out of your life insurance savings account and you put that into real estate. So now that money technically still making money in your life insurance savings account, but it's also making money in the real estate. So that way your money's both, your money's working in two different places. So it's like you put money in the life insurance account and then from there more money grows. So then because that other money grew, now you could take some of that out and put it in something else and do the same thing in another thing. Exactly, yeah. Interesting. So maybe I'm just getting the definition wrong. I thought life insurance was something where like you buy it and you can't touch it till like you die. You see, that's what a lot of people think. A lot of people don't understand really the truth and the meaning behind life insurance. And I think uh, the biggest blame for that is the life insurance agents that are selling you the life insurance. They don't want you to go with uh, with a policy that's going to allow you to put money away and also borrow against it, you know, and have all these benefits because for them, the commission on that's very low. So a life insurance agent is going to push a policy in which you're tucking money away. You can't touch that money till you die and your family can reap those benefits. So they're getting a bigger commission. It's greed. A lot of it is greed, you know. And so I think that's one of the um, uh, other big problems in America is it's uh, not enough people are educated enough on life insurance. We're all told we need it. We're all told that when we become married or we become adults that we should at some point go purchase a life insurance policy. But are we ever told why? Are we ever told how it works? I mean, did you ever learn these things in school? No. Yeah. So actually that brings me to my next question about kind of like financial education in general because you're you're 20, right? Yeah. I feel like a lot of people your age aren't super financially literate, right? So I'm curious, like what was the motivation for you to learn how to become financial literate? Because you started at a pretty young age, like middle of high school about, right? Yeah, so when I was in high school, I had a lot of challenges, but one of the biggest thing was I was was realizing that the educational impact on my, um, you know, that my classes were having was not big enough for me to change how I was already working and operating in the real world. So I had been working uh, as a lifeguard for the city of Henderson, um, I think I got, I think I got that job when I was a sophomore in high school. So I, I kind of asked myself the question of when I finish my high school education, what am I going to be able to plug into what I'm currently doing in the workforce? That's going to allow me to either move up to a bigger opportunity or, you know, to a different career or whatnot. Like, is there, is there anything that I can do with that? And I realized that there's, besides the title itself, right, besides the title of high school diploma, which a lot of jobs are going to be like, well, do you have a high school diploma? You know, they never check for it. They never check for it. But they always ask, do you have a high school diploma? Do you have a GED? Right? But really, it's just a title to say, I'm not entirely stupid. I'm I'm smart (laughs) enough to figure some things out. And a lot of companies will take that. But a lot of those companies that take just that bare minimum high school education are going to be places that are paying you minimum wage, are going to have you doing you know very <clears throat> mild, easy work that you really can't build a career off of unless you want to sit and train years and years and years of work away. When I worked at Discount Tire, it was um, 
no high school diploma was needed because I was 16, right? So I was able to work there without a high school diploma and do the basic jobs. But to be a um, like general manager of, of your own store, you had to have a high school diploma. And then that was it. And then you could climb the chain from there. So it's just staying at that job long enough to get the experience. Exactly. And the guys that ran these shops were in their 30s and 40s. And the guys that were running these companies, the like the general, the regional manager, Oscar, you know, he was probably making close to $600,000 a year, wow. you know, but he was in his 50s or 60s, you know, and he, was, and he had been working for Discount Tire since he was probably my age when I was working there, 16, yeah. you know. So to, to work at one company for that long just doesn't seem like a really viable option. People don't want to wait to climb the chain. That's not the way you want to go about a career or, or you know, attaining a skill. And so had realizing that, I was like, I need to figure out what the people that are making money are doing that most likely doesn't involve high school. And from what I've learned from a lot of the millionaires and billionaires that I listen to and read and follow, they always say that although education is very valuable, you don't want to be dumping yourself and your money into these higher education resources that are only going to give you titles. Titles aren't going to get you anywhere in life. Nobody cares that you're a you know PhD holder of you know mental health science, right? Are you, you know, saying they want to know what what is your reputation behind mental health? Are you what saying this you though, as it applies to people that are main goal or not main goal, but maybe big goal is to make a lot of money? Uh, m- well, I think where the direction I'm going is just with the general the base the base of uh you know people like you look at the the general people that are graduating from high schools and going to college like the majority that we're talking about right people my age right Got the it. majority of twenty year olds. They're going to college to get a higher education, which is good on them. I, anybody who can go out and do that, that's great, you know. But they're going and they're dumping hundreds of thousands of dollars going to college to get a title, right? They're, and, and I don't think that that's their fault. I feel like that's solely the education system's fault. Are you saying that maybe instead of going to the higher education, which costs a lot of money, they could learn the same skills without it? Is that what you're saying? Like so it, it could be, it could possibly be. And, and there are ways to learn without going to higher education. <clears throat> but um, I think a good example that I should compare uh, with this is when you look at trades and you look at college, higher education, they're both expensive. You have to pay to go to both, right? But a lot of these students in the trade schools, right out of being certified and trained in a trade, immediately go into jobs, immediately go into careers. Whereas students that graduate with degrees typically have to go through a kind of process of getting into a career. Gosh. That might be an internship or, um, you know, working in a certain field, building up the experience so that they can apply for a job. That's like, we expect you to have this much experience in the field that you're going into, right? So I feel like the downside on a higher education is that those you're, you're spending four years to get that title, mm-hmm. but you still have to build the skill and the experience i see because higher education i feel even if you major in something that's kind of specific right it's still very general in the sense that you're not learning how to like create a specific thing for a specific company kind of like that where yeah so i see what you mean where after your four years then you got to try getting like an entry-level job and that's where you start getting the actual job experience but do you see the value 
in higher education in the sense like maybe the thing you want to do is something where higher education is kind of important. Maybe you want to be a scientist or some type of engineer. Right? Definitely. I feel like STEM careers, definitely there's a lot to have benefit um, in when you get a degree. If you're going into science or engineering or mathematics, definitely go out and get a higher education degree. But as it pertains to me, I want to go out and I want to go into a field that I knew a higher education wasn't going to guarantee a better career path. And so that's what I what I feel like people our age aren't realizing when they get out of high school is they don't realize that the college degree isn't the, you know, one degree solves all career path for your life. You know, you see a lot of people. I, I was talking to a guy um, over at the ter- the Terribles uh, gas station up on Stephanie, and he was telling me about how he had, like, two psychology degrees. Wow. And the guy was working at a gas station, you know? Yeah. And I think and I think one of the biggest reasons behind that is because he gets this psychology degree, and he's like, okay, well, time to go out and pay myself a career. But it's a lot harder with just a degree to go out and start in psychology. And he's still got to pay off these college loans because those aren't going away. And that catches up to him. And then he's kind of in a spot where he's like, well, I'm still expected to pay these off. So now he's prioritizing paying off the student loans for that college degree over spending the money and the resources to go and actually figure out a career path that he can implement. Yeah, that does seem very tough about undergrad where, especially if you're going into a lot of debt, but it's also one of those jobs or it's one of those fields where you need, maybe you need a master's degree or even a PhD to actually get a job, a good job in the field to pay off that debt. So it's kind of right. like you get stuck in this trap where I, maybe I'm in $100,000 of debt from four years of college and I can either, you know, like wait and try to get a better job or more <clears throat> education or I could just get like a very entry level job just to work on paying off my debt. It's like when will you finally be be free to just do the thing you actually try to do right. by getting that education. And, you know, some people, Strad, they want to be able to chase security. You know, they're told that if they go out and they join college, you know, maybe their parents are paying for it. Maybe they're getting loans, right? They'll be in an environment where they feel safe and secure by their peers. You know, they'll go, they'll study, they'll figure something out, they'll graduate. You know, then they'll move to a career where they're going to feel secure by their peers and by their salary, you know, and then they live out the rest of their life kind of living in this security. But a lot of the people that are making money now are the people who are pushing past being, you know, more than, you know, they're not, they're not seeking being secure. They're seeking what's scaring me and what's scaring other people because typically what's scaring people like, especially now, the fact that we're in a recession, a lot of people are scared. A lot of people are pulling money out of stocks, out of real estate, right? But the people who make money, the millionaires that are super wealthy, they're the ones that are going, everybody else is scared now. So now is my time to not be scared and to jump into this and collect, you know, the rewards by pushing through and getting everything while it's, while it's at its lowest. So... You know, there's there's that difference between people. Some people seek security, some people seek risk and fear. You know, and I've been trying to train myself to push myself to be uh, the one who's seeking that risk and fear. Um, you know, it does scare me. It is a scary thing. But if you take the college, the college route, it can be scary too. But it's the more secure path. But what if, 
you, instead of going to college, instead of taking out $400,000 in student loans, you went and you took a risk and you took out a loan for $400,000. You might not even have the money to pay that loan off, right? So it's risky. You know, it's a scary thing to do. But if you go out and you successfully collect that $400,000 in, in that loan and you take that and you put it into real estate, right? And you have somebody else move into that real estate property and pay off that mortgage, meanwhile also giving you a $500 positive return on your investment each month, well, now that risk just became your reward. So now you're making a positive $500 a month while the guy over here who's paying off his $400,000 in student loans is still checking money away at these institutions, but he still hasn't got anything back on his investment. So you kind of just got to look at the differences between those two things because some people see the long-term run of getting that degree more beneficial and some people see, well, if I could build wealth now by having a good debt, right? Because having a loan for real estate could be a good debt because there's potential to make money either way. I mean, you just got to figure out which path you want to take. How do you long term or the short term? How do you balance, like, let's say you got the guy who is interested in wealth creation, right? Like he doesn't, he doesn't just want to be secure. He kind of wants to have that mindset of taking the risk, right? But he also is very interested in having a career related to something that college might be necessary for. Like psychology, for example, maybe they're interested in being like a psychological researcher or some type of therapist, something like that, where a college degree is usually required, right? But at the same time, they also want to live that wealthy lifestyle. Do you think there's a way to combine both? Definitely. I think there's definitely a way to live all sorts of lifestyles. And if you look at the majority of millionaires, they're always doing all (laughs) things. They're doing all trades and they're doing all different business ideas. And the way that they do that is they're putting their investments first over their education, right? And so by initially putting that investment first, that's gonna help you with your education and your knowledge because it's gonna it's gonna be teaching you something and earning you a reward, right? So if you wanna go to school for psychology, if you wanna get that degree and you wanna build that career, definitely go out and do that. But first, take out that $400,000 loan and get you some real estate first. And then use that real estate to fund your career. So you're saying it might education. be beneficial where instead of jumping right out of high school to college, maybe learn how to invest and get more financially literate so then the risk involved in paying for a degree is less because exactly. you'll have the funds yeah. and knowledge already. Exactly. And... Uh, you know, and you can totally make that work. Um, for me, I like, because again, this, this whole time, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with higher education. Definitely, we need people going out there and getting these degrees and getting into these careers and working for these high end companies and, you know, creating a better life for us all. But what I have been realizing for me is that I want to be able to educate myself. And I want to be able to become smart, but I also want to really emphasize on investing to the point where when I'm investing enough that my money is creating enough wealth coming back to me that I can use that money to hire the people with the education and the skills who know what they're doing, who already did the four years and the $400,000 in student loan debt, right? I can pay them way less, right? I'm still paying them a reasonable wage, right? And they can come in and they can take control 
with the skills and the education they have over the investments and the business opportunities that I have for them, right? So I want to be the guy creating and giving people the security of a salary and the security of a job, you know, over being the guy who goes out and spends all that time seeking that himself. Okay, so then you're kind of talking about the value of investment. Let's say someone's watching and they've never tried investing before. They have no knowledge on it, but they might want to be, they might want to get into it, right? What would be advice, like simple generic steps on how to get started into learning about it and maybe start making your first investment? Uh, that's a great question. So libraries are free. You know, they, you, you can go to a library and get a library card for a dollar. Go to the library, get books, get podcasts. I mean, now libraries have so many online resources that you can literally go on there and you can, you can look at articles from, you know, a lot of these companies like Forbes, you know, and read some of those. You can read books by investors, books by millionaires. You know, you can go out and you can uh, listen to podcasts. Uh, I love listening to podcasts. I feel like a lot of from what I've learned in everything we've been talking about so far, I've learned from books and podcasts. I learned that stuff from from high school and college. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like I'm reading two books right now, and I feel like the amount of information between the two books that I've been reading now, I feel like that education and information is way more than what I learned in the two years that I spent over at CSN getting my real estate degree. You know, so so that would be the first step. You can go go to a library. Look at those resources. Find out what there is. Second, watch the people who are doing what you're trying to do. You know, who's out there? Who's investing their money into uh, real estate or businesses, right? Look at what they're doing. You know, L- listen to their advice because they're out there and they're doing it. They have the experience and the skills. Listen to what they're doing. Um, and then, of course, you know, YouTube has a lot of resources out there. You know, you can YouTube some of the concepts that you don't understand. YouTube, how our economy works. Not a lot of people understand how the U.S. economy works. A lot of people are so quick to um, crap on capitalism, but a lot of them don't understand how capitalism works. You know, capital. I think uh, I think when we were in the grocery store, right on our trip, and uh, no, it wasn't on our trip. It was I was at the grocery store with my siblings, um, and Levi was looking at ice cream, and he was trying to decide which ice cream to choose. And he's like, I'm sorry, but there's just a lot of flavors. And I was like, well, it's capitalism. What do you expect, right? Like, there's there's an overwhelming amount of choices out there, yeah. right? And it's the same thing with not only careers, but investing and creating jobs. You can <clears throat> go out there and learn anything about any topic, and you can capitalize off of it. And that's what's so great about America. I mean, I've seen people go out there and start up dog poop scooping companies right i mean i worked for one right wow. you know and it's a very basic concept it's a problem that people have that you're solving and they're willing to pay for so and one of the the uh, interesting things that i learned is people will pay you overwhelming amount of money if you have a unique skill or set of uh, knowledge that not other people have right and so if you can go out there and figure out what that is, you know, or figure out what, like I said before, like what people need to solve, you know, that's an issue and be that solution that they're willing to pay for, you can do almost anything. So those would be the steps I would take, you know, educate yourself, make sure you're watching what other people are doing and go out there and look for the opportunities 
out there for building careers and investing. It's interesting that you bring that up, the whole uh, people will pay you for, like you can capitalize kind of off of simple ideas like the dog poop scooping business, right? Mm -hmm. Because I read, or I was was watching this podcast, you know, educating myself. Right. And this one guy was talking about this stat, or it was basically, he was asking what's like the most reliable way to become wealthy, right? And he was saying it seems to be that a lot of the people in the top 1% have some type of local monopoly on some type of business. So for example, he gave an example of like owning an auto shop in like a middle of a small town or something, right? And like you're the ones people come to, right? And it made me think because a lot of times when people think about getting wealthy, or at least I've thought this a lot is like, let's say I want to start a business. Well, then I got to be like one of the top dogs, you know, like I got to be like Amazon up there. But what this stat seems to say is that it's more, you don't have to be the most popular. You just got to have you just got to have enough of a community or like a local pool that goes to you where you can make enough money. So like this auto shop, it's not the best auto shop in the whole U S or the world. It's just has a local monopoly in that area. And he mentioned that the same kind of applies to content creation as well. So when starting a podcast, I was considering like, well, but like, you know, there's some big dogs out there, Joe Rogan, stuff like that. I'm never going to be like, like, how am I ever going to get to that right, level? Yeah. But you don't necessarily need to get that level to get wealthy from content creation. It's more if you could just find a community that picks you over other people. And that's where I think right, the unique yeah. skills come in because because you don't have to be the best that everyone likes. You just got to be unique enough that some people will choose you over like the mainstream people. Exactly. And uh, there's a lot of value out of small businesses and small business owners. And a lot of it is a lot of people who are living in small towns. You know, I mean, you know, Henderson isn't like a small town, you know, but it's a nice town, you know, and a lot of people, they don't want to drive to Las Vegas to go get some of these basic things, you know. So if you can find businesses that are not running in Henderson as much as you think that they should be, and you can open up something that's going to be valuable, that people are going to enjoy, you're right. You can capitalize off that easily. You know, and, and, and I think the interesting thing that this all breaks down to is definitely location. Location mm-hmm. in your investments and your business ideas is going to be the biggest thing that's going to determine whether you're wealthy or not. Because if you go out and you go to a tiny town um, like Fallon, Nevada, you know, what what's going on in Fallon, Nevada? You know, <laughs> I don't even know. you that might you might open up something that you feel like the people of Fallon, Nevada don't have, or the people of Fallon, Nevada don't have. Um, you know, a a laundromat, right? Yeah. You know, so you open up a laundromat. But what if the people in Fallon, Nevada already have laundry machines? You know, or they just do it the old school way, right? No one's gonna come in your laundromat, you know. Or if there's only five hundred people in the <clears> whole town, you know, and they're not doing laundry every day. You know, I mean, it's a numbers game, you know? Like, it's not a good spot to invest. Yeah. Interesting. So, one of the questions I had for you is because you were talking about learning from people that you want to be like millionaires, you know, reading books they've written. Right. And I think that's very valuable. But I think one one thing I heard, which I kind of resonated with, is a lot of times people who are in their start, like maybe they haven't invested before, will listen to millionaires who are already way up there, right? And try to imitate what they're doing currently at their stage when in reality it might be better to look at someone who's maybe just a year or two ahead of you and seeing what they're doing because they're closer to your stage than the people who are at the top right so i was curious because 
out of all my friends, I think you have a big potential to achieve the goals that you want to achieve, like, you know, good wealth, stuff like that, right? So of I'm course, curious. Yeah. I think it could be valuable for you to say what you're currently doing right now, because obviously you're not at the top of where you want to be yet, but you're on the path, right? So maybe someone who's just starting out can kind of see what you're doing because right. you're probably like maybe one or two years ahead of them, right? And get value from that and like keep moving that goalpost to, to higher and higher like advice, right? So like, yeah. what are you currently doing right now? to achieve your long-term goals? So that's a, that's a great question. So what I'm doing right now and what I've been working on doing, it's really tough, but I've been working every week to get better and better, is I've been working on establishing habits and creating those habits into a routine and really changing not who I am, but how I operate. Because I feel like on a day-to-day basis, if you're trying to be uh, somebody who's getting up and going to earn that bread, right? You know, you really have to have the habits of people who do get up and do go out and, and earn that bread. So I've been trying to be healthier. I've been trying to get more sleep. I've been trying to read more books. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to take my mind away from technology. I've been really good at reducing my social media mm-hmm. um, intake. You know, I feel like social media, you know, it's, it's cool. We like seeing what other people are up to. But it's not going to benefit you in any way. It's really not. Unless you're watching some of these guys that are, you know, doing some positive things and are teaching you how to become a millionaire, then then sure, seeing some of their social media stuff could be a little impactful. But I've been trying to reduce that. Um, And what I've also been trying to do is I've also been um, really trying to clear my mind of the, the challenging thoughts of... You know, oh, well, this is really hard, you know, changing my habits or I don't want to get up and I don't want to do this. Right. I mean, trying to reprogram my brain to activate those thoughts into actions of actually doing what I don't want to do. Right. So when I feel like, oh, I don't want to go to the gym. Right. Going like, you know what? Because you just thought that because you're like, well, I don't want to go to the gym now. Now we're getting up and we're going to the gym right now. Oh, you know, like it's all a thought game you know if you can understand your thoughts and force yourself to go the route in which it's going to be yeah it's going to be painful you don't want to go to the gym right so you kind of use every time you have a thought like i don't want to do this you use that as a signal that you should probably do it exactly yeah you know which obviously i mean it it sounds like it's the obvious thing to do you know but you're like, well, okay, I, 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 need, I know I need to go to the gym today. I know I need to go to the gym today. I know I need to go to the gym today. Well, why haven't you gone to the gym yet? You know? Well, because there's been other things that you're like, well, I'd rather sit down and do this, right? Why would you rather do that? You know? Maybe it's the problem is that you're over-consuming that thing, right? Maybe it's like, well, I'd rather sit down and watch a bunch of YouTube you know, instead of get up and go tire myself out, right? But why, so so why is that? Why are you sitting down watching YouTube all day, you know? Maybe you just need to take that out of the picture, right? Eliminate your YouTube use, you know? Yeah. So it's really just pulling things, distractors out of your life so that you can really focus in on what you need to do. I really like that idea of kind of going against what your mind's initially saying because... I'll be at the gym, for example, and like the first two or three exercises I'm doing, I'm just thinking, oh, I'm so tired. I don't want to do this. And it's kind of ruining the workout, right? And then I, I get to a point where I'm like, 
I don't have to keep thinking these thoughts, right? Like right now I'm just letting my brain right. kind of go on autopilot and it's easy to just be like, because working out can be painful or like tiring, right? So it's easy to let my thoughts just go to, oh, this is tiring. I don't want to do this. But if you like consciously think like, I don't have to agree with these thoughts. I don't have to let them dictate how I feel right now. And then just like try actively to think, okay, well, I'm working out anyway. So I might as well try to have a good workout. So maybe my next set, I'm going to try to really like, focus on my form instead of thinking right. how tired I am or something like that. So I think there's a lot exactly, of value yeah. in just not having to abide by everything your thoughts are saying at the moment. Yeah, don't don't let your thoughts overcome your reality, you know? Be able to sit there and be like, you know, I want to do this because I know it's going to be a good investment and a good positive impact for me in the future, you know? I might not want to do it now, but future me, I always think about future me. You know, if future me saw what present me is doing now, you know, is he going to be disappointed or is he going to be glad? And a lot of times when it's disappointed, I know that I got to get up and I got to do what future me wants me to do. You know, because they say, they say that that hell is like true hell is when you meet what the perfect you would have been. Oh. And you realize that you are far from it, you know. That is like the most excruciating thing you could ever experience, you know. And I don't want to be like that, you know. I don't know what what perfect me would look like, but I'm at least going to try to become perfect me. So those are just some of the things that I've been trying to do now to really just get myself into habits, get myself going the right path. And it sounds like you're trying to set a baseline of how you operate. So that it's similar to how a lot of these successful people operate. So that you already kind of have the actions down and like the habits down. So then you could just start working on the more technical stuff with becoming well. Exactly, exactly. And um, and what I've been really trying to do too is I've been trying to network more mm-hmm. and meet the people who are creating these uh, investment opportunities. And, you know, maybe I don't have the money now to even put into it. But I'd love to at least be able to sit by and watch, you know, see what they're doing, make their money. Have you ever had a mentor before? A mentor? You know, I can't, I can't really say that I have. Um, it's something I would really want, yeah. you know. I'd really love to have, like, a, a good mentor. Um, and that's something that I'm actively working on figuring out, like, where I can find a good mentor. But I think that because I might not have had a designated mentor, I feel like my mentor for now has pretty much been my dad you know because he you know he might not know what i'm you know what i'm trying to do you know or the specific skills and knowledge i need to become wealthy but he has a lot of basic skills and knowledge on how to get through life and build habits Mm -hmm. you know and and become better at you know doing your day-to-day stuff you know so so what i'm doing now you know i can definitely look to him to figure out some of the challenges that i'm yeah it sounds like he'd be the perfect mentor for you to have at this stage because like you said you're trying to build the basic habits and if he he has that down then he seems like the perfect mentor and then maybe later on as you're networking right now you'll find a mentor who can help you more with the technical wealth creation stuff yeah because i think i think that when it comes to mentors mentors are no help if they're not going to understand your current state when I was at Cobalt Banker, I went to a real estate event with Mike Ferry, and there were all of these real estate coaches there that were all pushing 
all pushing for coaching, right? And coaching is this thing that you pay for. And you, I mean, you pay out of your ass like 120 bucks a month for this coaching, yeah. right? You know, but they say that the coaching guarantees you all this business and all these leads and then you can go out and make all this money. So then like really the coaching is like a small investment, right? Which is all, it's all true, you know? If you can invest a small, tiny amount, you know, and the money is larger than that small amount you're spending, then, then it's going to be an investment and that's going to be good for you and your business. But for me, in my current state in real estate, that was not true. And I feel like a lot of these these uh, mentors and these coaches, they didn't understand that because they're all the way up here. They're making, mm. you know, they're like, well, 120 bucks is nothing. I'm making, you know, $6,000 a month, you know, 120 bucks is nothing, right? Okay, well, I'm not making $6,000 a month. I'm making no, no dollars a month, right? I'm running off my savings, which is running low, right? I quit my, I quit my part-time job to, to run my business full-time, right? And I'm not making any money coming in. So tell me something that I can do, right? To, to learn from somebody, to get better and scale my business that doesn't require me to spend money. Because right now, I can't afford to spend money. And I feel like a lot of people, their, their solution for business is, well, if you just spend money to, you know, solve the problem that you have. Okay, well, sometimes that's not always an option for somebody, you know? So I do believe in paying for mentorship, you know? But, you know, right now, that might not be something that's going to do you any good. Because yeah, your mentor again, might be pushing yeah. you to do something that you just can't do right now. That, that's where I think, again, like the value of having maybe a mentor who's only like one or two years ahead of you rather than already the top dog. Because if you had someone who maybe just recently scaled up their business to make a certain amount per month then like they would be perfect for you because that's what you're trying to do and they just did it so like they're really right. fresh they're they don't have the mindset where 120 dollars is nothing because they were just in the situation where 120 dollars is everything right exactly yeah yeah so on the topic of real estate i'm curious because you mentioned how you got your degree in real estate and uh-huh. i was curious what was the motivation in learning about real estate how how was it being such a like pretty young for your age, already working like a real estate job. And then what are your future plans to kind of go back to real estate? Yeah. Um, so right out of high school, and you see, my, my plan wasn't to be in real estate. My plan, I want to be a firefighter. You know? oh, interesting. I want to be a firefighter. And uh, I, I realized pretty fast that that's just you know, it's hard. It's a hard job. You know, it's a hard job. You get, you know, you get paid pretty good. Um, but I, But I had people who were doing it. You know, people in my circle that were doing it, and it's tough. You know, you work your ass off. My buddy Davian, he just became a firefighter recently. And you're talking about a guy who was working for the city of Henderson for five years, wow. you know, and throughout that whole time was going to EMS school, you know, working as an EMT part-time and as a lifeguard part you know, a senior guard part-time. Um, so I realized pretty fast that I didn't want to be a firefighter anymore. It was just too challenging. So I was trying to figure out something I wanted to do that was going to be interesting, that I think would be cool, that I could really dig into. And I realized pretty fast, kind of not intentionally, but just kind of realized that I really like real estate. And, and not like real estate, the business aspect, but like real estate as its physical form. Like I have always been super fascinated with um, commercial buildings uh, residential properties, yeah, you know, I mean, from from the nice end to, I mean, even as much as like the mid income end, you know, I've always 
whenever I walk into people's houses I've never been in, I'm always just kind of taking a look around, you know, like, how, you know, how's your house looking, you know, what's the layout like? And that's something that really made me realize, okay, I like real estate. I think I could do this. You know, I like the physical aspect of real estate enough. I, I feel like I'd get into the business. Um, but that's when I had started discovering the Bigger Pockets podcast and some of these real estate investors that were talking about how much money you can make in real estate, not just through the business aspect, but the investment aspect. And so I realized, okay, well, if I study real estate, it can be my career, it could be my business, and it could be my um, investment, right? So it checked all three of the things that I realized I needed to have in life. So I was like, okay, I, I think I could do this. So my first step was to go to real estate school and get my real estate license. So I was, cha- I had changed my um, career or uh, major at college, which was the, kind of the first step before I did the real estate school. But I didn't know that get, doing certain classes in my uh, real estate degree would have already satisfied the real estate school, but I went to real estate school anyway. So I was kind of doing both at the same time. But I got my degree way after um, I got my license because that class is like a month if you work really hard. I think I finished it in like five months, mainly because the pandemic and stuff had hit, so it kind of slowed me down. But I had gotten my schooling finished when I was 19. (coughs) And then I went and I got my license um, test. I did that, passed it my first time. And yeah, thank you. (laughs) I mean, it was really hard. You know, the test is a little confusing, but I passed my first time. So now I had my education, I had my license, and then I was just told by everybody, go out, put your license under a brokerage, and you can start making a massive amount of money. So I was like, okay, great. Like, that's perfect. So I went to Coldwell Banker. Now, Coldwell Banker wasn't going to be my first choice. I was going to work for my uncle. But I had a friend who was supposed to work at Coldwell Banker with me. Never did in the end, so kind of was pointless waiting around for them. But I went to Coldwell Banker. Because I was like, well, I want to have like a partner in crime, you know, I could do real estate with and we can get through these challenges. But um, I went to a Coldwell Banker sales meeting. Uh, the broker owner uh, is two people. It's for the Coldwell Banker Premier Realty. It's Bob Hammerk. And for Coldwell Banker Luxury and Coldwell Banker uh, Premier yeah, premiere. I think that's what it was. That is owned by his wife, Molly Hammer. So I obviously joined the uh, premiere realty because, you know. Oh, and there's Cole Baker commercial. Um, so I joined premiere realty and I came in, got my little cubicle. You know, oh, wow. they had me sign my partnership paperwork basically saying that i'm gonna contract with them so i was never working for Coldwell banker i was working under Coldwell banker so i get to use their name you know i get to use their resources i get to use their office right all Wait, real stuff. quick how did you feel your first day like going there being kind of young you know felt awesome yeah. felt awesome when i had signed the paperwork they had said i was the youngest guy in the company wow youngest guy was that intimidating at all no, a little bit you know only i mean the only thing I didn't like about being the youngest guy is everybody there thinks they know everything more than you. You know, you know, I, I, you know, I'm older than you, so I know everything. You know, and I've been in real estate longer than you. You know, yada 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 yada. You know, so it's really hard being a young guy 
in an environment like that because people yeah, are always like, well, we'll see that. how this guy works out, you know? Um, but once I had gotten into real estate and I had joined Cobalt Banker, that's when a bunch of stuff hit me about stuff that they don't tell you because they're like, oh, go on, go out and get your real estate license and then hold it under a brokerage and you'll make all this money, right? So now I'm like, all right, how do I make all this money, you know? <laughs> And they were like, well, you know, you gotta, you gotta do this and this and this and this, you know, and it was like this long process of these things I had to do to just like, you know, start, you know, it, it was mostly like things that the coal banker wanted you to do to run your business, which made no sense because it was like, they wanted me to come in every morning and do affirmations, you know, so we do these affirmations, you know, like I'm a positive thinker, you know, really? you know, and I'm, I'm this and that and that, right? And then we would learn things about contracts and different things. And then, you know, they teach us, you know, how to, to work our SOIs and stuff like that. But a lot of these things, it was like how Cobalt Banker wanted me to run my business. You know, it wasn't like anything of like how you as you can run your business. So the challenging thing that I had to understand was I'm a business owner at this point. I own a real estate business. You know, that's just whatever you may call it. I think I called it like, because I had to get a business license. I think, I think I called it like Scott Elton Realty. You know, or not realty, but like, uh, you know, real estate business, you know, because there's some reason that you can't use realty. But um, I had had like gotten to this point where I was like ready to be making the money. But I was reading this book by David Green called Sold. And it was talking about how as a new agent, this is how you make money through your real estate business. This is how you generate leads. This is how you like scale your business to be successful. And David Green was talking about how you have to create a lead generation funnel. So you gotta collect people who are interested, you gotta work them to see if they're really genuinely interested in buying or selling, and then you gotta be able to actually get their property sold or bought. And then that's when you get paid at the end. So realizing this, I knew, okay, well I have to go out and get leads. I have to get leads and I have to work those leads and be able to basically convince people to buy or sell. And then once everything's over, once all this work is done, I'll get paid. And so that was kind of a bummer because I was like, okay, this is going to be a lot harder than I thought, right? Because I don't have a big sphere of influence. I don't have a very big um, By sphere network. of influence, do you mean like people you know that people are I know, to sell? Yeah, pretty much. And I reached out to everybody I knew, you know, on yeah. social media text i'm sure you probably got one of my texts one time <laughs> you know and uh <laughs> you, you even turn your whole instagram into like your business i computer. did yeah i turned my whole instagram into my business account and i got nothing from my sphere of influence which is a big part of real estate business for a lot of these people that start out but a lot of people that start out are in their 30s and 40s so they're already they already have like a giant um you know i have a giant sphere of influence of people who are even in the position to go out and buy real estate. Twenty year olds that I knew oh, in high school. Yeah, that's a good who's gonna buy who's gonna buy real estate. Do you think on top of that, not like even if you did find someone who was looking to sell, just the fact that you were so young and it'd be your first sell made it hard for I don't think so. Like really I think I think age has nothing to do with it. I was working with I was working with people Not like who, you weren't skilled enough at your age, but do you think people have a perception like, oh, this is his first time selling a house or he's pretty young do you think they might prefer someone older i think that when they see somebody younger i feel like that makes them feel a few different ways 
But I think in the back of their mind, people prefer somebody younger because they're going to be the ones that are most informed and refreshed about the topic. Gotcha. You know, a guy, and, and, and I understood that a lot of people get into business and then they do business the way that they want to do, right? I understood that, you know? <clears throat> but they move away. They really move away from the basics of real estate when they do that. You know, I've seen a lot of people who are like, oh, to do open houses, you've got to do it this way. You've got to, you know, have a sign-in sheet. If you don't have a sign-in sheet, you're never going to get the leads down and memorized, you know. And then you got to go over here and you got to make sure that you have snacks because people love snacks, <laughs> you know. And it was just like, that's great, but that, that may work for you, right? But for me, maybe it's maybe it's people don't have the time to come to my open houses. Maybe what I need to do as a young person is I need to pick up my cell phone and I need to do virtual open houses. You know, live stream on a platform, right? Be like, hey, welcome to my open house, right? You know, tour the house. You know, have that more in-touch, being modern way of going about business than doing all this old-school stuff. Because the old-school stuff just doesn't work anymore. And a lot of the old-school stuff was to get leads, you got to pick up the phone and call. Call, 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 call. <clears throat> and it was like... I don't want to pick up a phone and call numbers of people who are going to be like, who the fuck are you? Why are you calling me? Right? Yeah. And just to hang up on me. Or the people who slightly are interested are only slightly interested in the moment because maybe they were thinking about it and you're like, hey, are you looking to buy or sell? Do you know anyone who's trying to sell? And they're like, you know what? I was thinking about buying a property, right? So they give you all their information, right? And then they hang up. But then... You know, a few days later, you give them a call and you're like, hey, yeah, we talked a few days ago. They're like, yeah, well, you know what? I was just feeling that way in the moment. But no, I don't think I want to go and, and take time out of my day to go buy real estate, right? So those things and, and, and door knocking as well, you know, door knocking. Go knock on doors. If you go and you knock on doors, you know, you can get all these leads, right? That may have worked for you in the 70s, Mary Ellen. But it's not the 70s anymore. It's just, it isn't. Well, it also know? seems like a very serial process where you got you can only like work on one lead at a time. Where if you're using like social media or some type of online platform, you could post one thing and potentially, it's like more parallel where you potentially have multiple people that see it at once. Exactly. And um, I'm trying to remember how, where, we, where we came from. Um, oh, yeah. So, so I may be young, but I think I have a very up-to-date approach on how things should be done right you know i might not know everything in real estate but i know how the books how the real estate classes tell me real estate should be run not only just business wise but ethics wise a big part of my real estate class was all ethics and um you know fiduciary duties you know and things that you are obligated to give your clients and and how to give them those things and how to stay out of jail oh wow and so um, but what are the ethics of real estate? Well, a lot of it is, um, you know, you, you, you gotta be upfront and honest with your clients. You can't mislead them. You know, you can't influence them to make a decision on a certain property. And, and, and it can be really tricky because sometimes I'll get a lot of questions from people who come into open houses. They're like, uh, talking to me about the real estate property and I'm telling them how the house was, uh, you know, initially came to be and why it's here, you know, and, why the builder decided to go with the, the platform that they went with and, you know, kind of giving them a little history lesson on it. And then I always bring up that I was born and raised here, so I kind of got to see a lot of these properties pop up. 
Um, and they're all, they always ask me, oh, well, what, where are the good sides of town? You know, well, where are the bad sides? Where should I not live, right? I can't tell you that. Really? I can't tell you that because my definition on what's good and what's bad isn't the same on what your definition of good is bad, right? So if you're asking me what side of town is good, right? Well, I, I could, if I was a bad agent, I could be like, oh, the good side of town? You gotta, you gotta move to Summerlin. Summerlin, Centennial Hills, Anthem, Inspirata. You gotta live out here, right? You know, I'm not going to tell somebody to go out and live out in paradise, you know, or go live out in like Whitney, you know. But is that because Whitney's a bad place? No, Whitney's not a bad place to live, but it's lower, lower property prices, right? So now I've just have influenced them to go live in a place with a higher price point. Are you able to get around that by maybe they ask what it where's the good place to live and you're like well i can't tell you what's good but like can you tell me what you want and i can tell you what places have exactly it. and that's how it's supposed to be done right you know so so i would ask that question right and they'd be like <clears throat> well we don't want to live in a place where you know people who are just going about their daily lives could just walk up to my house okay great then you don't want to live in this part of vegas right because the roads they run right through these neighborhoods right so people walking down the sidewalk or walking right in front of your house you know so maybe you want to live more in a place like Anthem where you have to drive into the community to really like get to your house. You know, the people living in Anthem don't have people walking in front of their houses because they're so out there, you know. Yeah. So so you can ask questions like that. But you got to be careful, you know. You got to really understand like am I, am I answering based on my opinion or am I answering based on what they are looking for, right, in their opinion. So if they ask me what a good place is, I can't answer that because that's my opinion. Right now, I can give my opinion when showing a house, right? Like if I'm like showing a house that I'm selling, right? I could be like, "This house, this house, Strad selling this house, and it is the nicest house in the neighborhood. It is very nice, right?" That's because that's my opinion and that's my client's opinion, right? Because we're a team, right? I'm not misleading anybody who's trying to buy it because they can make their own opinion. They can be like, well, you know what? We don't think this is the nicest house in the neighborhood. But if I used like a term like, this is the quietest neighborhood in Green Valley, the old, nice, quiet neighborhood. If you move in and the neighbors next door got a dog farm going on, you know, the dog's always barking. True story. Heard about an agent that sold a house like that, right? Wow. You know, the owners came back after the property closed with all the dogs, you know. <laughs> And they, they had a lawsuit over it because now it's not the quietest. Oh, wow. It's not a nice, quiet neighborhood, you know? It's not. That's a nice, annoying neighborhood, you know? So now you just misled them, right? And there's a lot of words like that that you can't put in your listings. You can't say, um, you can't say certain words like, um, you know, walking distance from a Royal Grande sports complex. It may be walking distance for you, Strad. But for the paraplegic client that is looking to buy the house, it's not walking distance for Wow. Him. So it's not just intentionally misleading someone, but it's really easy to just it's like It's like you got to abide to like ADA like stuff, you know? Wow. Like you can't discriminate. That. That's a big that thing too. You can't discriminate based off race, religion, you know. Uh, the only thing you can discriminate off against is, um, and, <laughs> and it's a little screwed, but uh, politics. 
Really? You can you can discriminate based off somebody's political views. Do you mean because, like if this neighborhood's predominantly liberal? You well, you know, that? if I was like, if I was if I was selling a house, right? You know, and I was getting all these people who are like applying, and I knew Strad that you're a Republican, right? You know, and I knew that this other guy was a Democrat, and I knew that this other guy was just like non-partisan, right? And I'm like, well, I don't like politics. So I'm going to go with this nonpartisan guy because, you know, he knows what's up, right? And he doesn't care about politics. So I want to sell it to him. I don't want to sell it to these two that bicker and fight with each other. You know, these fucking Republican and Democrats and always ah, causing all this havoc, you know? That's not really something that's them. Do you, you think know? it's just because it's harder to prove, like, what someone's politics is compared to what someone's race is? Yes, because it's, it's harder to prove that you are discriminating against them because of religious uh, belief. Okay. but Or, sorry, not religious belief, political, uh, political belief. belief. But it's also like, you know, who cares about your political beliefs? You know, like it's 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 such an unimportant thing as a person. But like your religious beliefs, I mean, and, and now like as the world becomes more modern and, and hatred towards religion grows, it could change. Who knows? But um, but like religious belief and, um, you know, just your ethnicity you know, and, and, and your your uh, disabilities, you know, these things aren't things that you can change, you know. I can't change the fact that I'm, you know, the, the color, the skin color that I am, or that I'm the, uh, you know, I speak the language that I speak, you know. And, uh, you know, if you discriminate against people because of that, like, you don't, like, it's, um, there's a term called, uh, I'm trying to remember what it is, it's called, give me one sec, I'm trying to remember, steering. That's what it was. It's called steering. And it's when you, as a real estate agent, are pushing minorities to certain places. So a minority comes and looks at this house, and you as an agent, you're like, no, 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 no. You don't want to live here. You want to live over here in Whitney, right? And then those people are like, oh, Whitney sounds cool, right? So then they go move to Whitney, right? But then now all of a sudden, wait, why are all the white people living in Whitney? Well, that's because this agent doesn't want any of the white people living over here with his black clients you know so he had steered all the white people wow. away from the property but the second that a black client shows up he's like oh yeah this house is a great option for you that's steering so now you're now you're moving you're moving a group of people this way and you're bringing what and, and it could be whether you're moving minorities away or you're moving nine minorities too you know Doing any of that, yeah. that's that's against the, the code of ethics. Right? How do that's you, steering. It's against how, how do you law. make a case against that? Is it, you just got to look at someone's track record and see if it seems like that's how they're influencing people? Yeah, so, you know, it could be really tricky, but it could be as simple as I feel like, I'm like, hey, I feel like I went to this house and I feel like I was turned away because of my skin color. I go to the, uh, the real estate division. I file a complaint. The real estate division investigates it. And if it has to go beyond the real estate division and go to like a bigger scale where they're actually like getting into the legal, you know, um, aspect of it, and they're like really make a case and they really invest, oh, sorry, they really investigate it, then they can figure it out, you know. So it, gotcha. it's it's not like an easy thing to do, you know. But if you're not careful and you start steering minorities, like you're gonna, and you know, you're you're committing crime there. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Yeah. I didn't realize how much, I don't know, like different persuasion tactics can go into this that are just, like, I, th- I feel like it's good that there's a real estate ethics that they teach, and I didn't mm-hmm. know about it. 
Yeah, you know, because because like I was talking about life insurance agents, right? Life insurance agents, they want to get that commission. So they're going to tell you to buy a certain policy. They're going to influence you to buy a certain policy. And that's against ethics, right? In real estate, because it's such a high-risk thing, a high-risk value, and, uh, you know, like such an important decision that people make in their lives. They don't want agents pushing you to make a decision just so they can get paid, you know? That's against ethics, you know? No one cares whether you get paid or not. You know, people care that you do your job. Yeah, well, damn, I think what you've been talking about so far has been very useful for anyone either interested in real estate or interested in finances. I'm going to steer courses now, very different topic, but this is another thing I think could be interesting to talk about. So you used to, you're, you live in a pretty big family, right? About yes, like I do. Eight siblings. And you guys used to, the whole family used to be Mormon, right? Yes. You grew up very Mormon, very religious, and then... I don't remember when, but at one point, it just all switched. Your family left the church, right? Yeah. And now you've kind of got flip-flop. You're kind of the other way, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, yeah, how how do you think growing up with a religious background has affected you, and especially now that you're kind of like the opposite, have the opposite viewpoint? It's a really good question. You know, um, when it comes to religion, I don't have any ill feelings against religion. Uh, nor do I have any ill feelings towards the LDS church, you know, um, you know, Mormons are, you know, they're great. They're, they're, how do you say they're, they're kind, but they're not nice. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, if you ever heard that saying, you know, are they nice, but they're not kind. Right. Um, but I have no, I have no ill feeling against them. Um, with, when it comes to religion though, what I think a lot of people don't realize is that when you grow up in a religion, just like anything else growing up, it's going to have a very big influence on you and what you determine your religious beliefs to be when you are a fully developed adult. And so growing up in the church myself, I have always just believed in what the church taught, believed in what I felt, believed in what I seen, because that's all I grew up around. All I grew up around was people saying that the church was the true church, right? And that Jesus loves you and that Jesus lives and sacrifices his soul, you know, and all these things. And so I, of course, I'm going to believe that because it's it seems to be the best thing to believe, right? But as I had become older, I had realized that just, I, I not that I started disagreeing, but I was like, I don't really have the same reasoning that this other guy does for this religion you know a lot of people would have these like um testimonies for the church that i was just like i mean that's cool but like i don't feel that way towards the church you know i was still cool with the church but i had started kind of developing my own opinion but it was hard to really develop my own opinion because i'm trying to like stay with what i initially was taught Right, because this is now like ingrained as a part of me. I'm like, well, you know, I grew up with a religion, so like, I think I need a religion, right? Mm. So it it was really hard for me to be like, like leaving the church, realizing that like I don't need a religion to be like a person, you know, or like to live a life, you know. But to me, I'd always seen people who did, and the people who never had a religion were always the bad guys. They were always the guys that didn't have good lives, you know. Oh, well, the people who go to jail because they didn't have Jesus, you know? And so I don't want to go to jail, you know? <laughs> so I'm going to keep Jesus in my life, right? So um, 
what I think people don't realize, like I was saying before, religion is so impressionable on people, especially young people. And so when people get indoctrinated into a religion, they're either going to be in that religion for life or they're going to figure out that they don't have to believe what everybody else thinks and that they can go out and have their own opinion. But in religious culture, they don't open up for that to be an option. When you go into a religion, when you even have the slightest thought of your own being like, well, I think this religion doesn't really fit me. I think this one does. People in that religious group are so quick to tell you that you're wrong, to tell you that if you leave this path, you're going to go to hell, you know, because they don't want you to go join the other religious group. They don't want you to leave their religion. And a lot of it has to stem off the fact that the church does profit off your membership, you know, the fact that you are a Mormon, you know, you're paying 10% income. Yeah, I didn't know you paid 10% of your income. And not a lot of people do. And a lot of people think that it's normal because they're taught that it's normal. I thought that it's okay, right? You know, and uh, it's interesting because I feel like it's really harmful to a lot of the youth when they're when they're brought up. They they don't have their own thoughts on religion, but you're shoving it down their throat, you know. And well, that's I wanted so to ask harmful. you actually because so you're talking about how a lot of kids might end up having their own opinions and then. F- either finding another religion's better no religions like fits more with them and i'm curious like especially with lds uh, families you you're like constantly surrounded by that like whether it's uh, you go to seminary in the, in the morning of school you're always hanging <coughs> around people who have a similar religion which i think is fine but i'm curious these people that do deviate and end up getting their own opinions how do you think they even get the those own opinions in the first place because you need to be able to see other viewpoints because if you're constantly just seeing the viewpoints of the religion you grew up with, like would these other opinions even sprout in your head? Do you know what I mean? Right. Well, uh, that's a really good question. But how did you and, personally and start? Deviating? I'll tell you in a sec. I, yeah. I kind of want to address that that initial statement for that you sure. Made. Um, I think a lot of it is influence from their friends that aren't Mormon, but of course, you know, Mormons are always told like, oh, don't. I, I mean, I remember, I remember learning a lesson where they said that if your friends go against your religious values. That you had to cut them off. You had to cut them off. Get rid of that friend. Never be friends with them. Wow. And I remember just thinking, damn, that is so that's so wrong though. Because people can have different opinions. Just because my friend isn't Mormon, and he doesn't go to church every day, and he doesn't, and, and, and maybe maybe he drinks alcohol, right? Doesn't mean I can't be friends with him. Because I think the church make tries to make you think that if you're friends with those people, they will win you over they will pull you away from your religion and you'll be you'll be doomed you know but that's just not true you know and it's the same thing with politics it's the same thing with politics you know religious religion think of religion as like politics because it basically is you know they are trying to keep you on their side and with political people you know they're so quick to tell you oh don't listen to the republicans don't listen to the democrats they're just trying to pull you on their side right so nobody can ever agree anywhere right um and so for me you had asked um what what was my moment that i realized that it was not or not for me or whatever for me um it was when i i had walked into a a morning side which is like basically it's 
instead of going to seminary class, you go to the chapel and they have like a lesson that they teach to all the seminary classes. So I had walked in and, uh, you know, it was pretty just typical, you know, all the Green Valley uh, students that were going to seminary flooded into the chapel and, and they had started this discussion on uh, masturbation being a sin. And I was just absolutely shocked that here are grown adults sitting here preaching to 14, 15, 16-year-olds <laughs> without their parents even knowing that masturbating is a sin and then putting their phone number on the board and saying, if you feel like you or a friend is struggling with the sin of masturbation and you just need anonymous help to text this number, dude, I don't think they understood how wrong that was. I mean, and, th- and for me, that's when I had just realized that something was off about Mormonism. Wait, why did you view that as so wrong? Because I, I don't believe that masturbation is a sin. I think that if, if God is going to create people and create them to have these human instincts, these natural instincts, that everybody does. That everybody, for the history of the planet, before we can even have thought about whether things were right or wrong, we were masturbating, you know? <laughs> and so to say that masturbation is a sin, because the Bible says so, you know, whatnot, but, but to be telling that to a bunch of 14, 15, 16-year-olds that are going through puberty, that are having these urges, I mean, that's just wrong to tell them that, that their bodily instincts are wrong. Now, that is just control. Well, what I find so interesting about that case, because I've had friends who were in the church, right? And... Like, they believed a lot of what the Bible says, but they also didn't believe that masturbation. They didn't believe that masturbation is a sin, right? So they right. they would partake in the activity. And in my opinion, I think, why do you, you get to choose what you think is right and isn't right in the book? And what I mean by that is not saying you should believe everything in the book, right? But if you don't believe one thing in the book is true, then why do you still believe the rest of the book is the, the rest of what's right. in the book is true. And that is like what I've been saying for a long time. Why is it okay for people to go and think, well, you know, it's not going to hurt if I go out and do this on Sunday. Like go out and buy some groceries on Sunday. Break the Sabbath a little bit, right? Yeah. Or, you know, I, yeah, I mean, we were talking about BYU culture and oh, the BYU yeah. students there. They, I mean, they are so horned up and just ready <laughs> to do whatever they can do that they find ways to like get around sinning and it's like if you really feel like doing that is right then maybe really what you think is that the book is wrong but it's the culture that's going to suck them into this religion for the rest of their lives and they're never going to be able to leave and it's not to say that you can't follow things that are in the book like like maybe you think having sex before for marriage is or not having sex before marriage is a practical thing. Like it might help you in life, right? right? I'm not saying, basically what I'm saying is you don't have to say because you think it's more practical not to do it, that that means it's a sin to do it. And that means you should tell everyone else like, hey, you can't do this or you're going to go to hell, right? And that's what I think the whole thing in, like if you don't believe in one thing in the book, then just don't believe in the book. Just pick the things that you think are practical and will help you in life, but accept that other people Maybe it's not practical for them or it won't help them. Right. Either, right. Yeah. 
you know, it's it, it's really interesting because, like I had said before, the church is always gonna try to gain control and grasp on you, but everybody because because the church does have this grasping and control on everybody. When you try to tell them that, they're gonna be like, no, 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 that's not right. You know, that's and not it's true. interesting too because you yeah you brought up the whole point of like they're to say don't listen to other people because they'll suck you in right. Like if they truly believe what they're saying and think that what they're saying is strong enough to believe in, then they shouldn't be scared. Like they shouldn't have that fear of other exactly. people pulling if, you in. If your faith is strong enough in the church, you should be able to have conversations with people who don't believe in the exactly. church. And if you feel like that having a conversation like like that with somebody is going to be bad for you, that's just a control of the church telling you not to do that because they don't want that risk. They don't want you leaving the church. And if a church even is willing to do that, then it's not a good church, you know? And so I, you know, I've been able to have some good conversations with some people that that are friends of mine that are still in the church. Like, you know, he's a great guy. He served his mission. You know, I've always been there for him as his friend. And he has a very strong faith in the church, you know? And it's something that I am very proud of him for having, you know? He thrives on having these religious beliefs. But... I do think that he, at the same time, you know, has some doubt about the church. And I've seen some of the doubts that he has in the church. And it makes me wonder, what is his, really his motivation of believing that the whole church is true in general? Because cause I think that's something that a lot of my Mormon friends aren't ready to, like, accept. Is that they can still be religious, and they can still have a belief in God and a relationship with God. But it might not just be through the Mormon church. I think that... The Mormon Church is one of the most corrupt and just completely screwed churches I've ever come across, right? And and that's from a guy who's been through it, you know? It doesn't seem like that on the inside. It doesn't. But when you're on the outside looking in, I try to tell people that are still members to this day, I'm like, if you could see from my seat, from my point of view, what the church looks like and what people are saying about our church... Well, not, not my church anymore, but your church. Yeah. Like, it's bad. It's not good. Nobody likes you, you know? From from day one, nobody liked the Mormons. And, and you have, and not a lot of Mormons know this either, but Joseph Smith was thrown in Carthage jail for treason against the United States and the state of Illinois. Really? Do you want to know why he was being charged with treason? Yeah, can you also... I'm not too good on the literature of it, like LDS. Do you know, like, what is this? Who is this guy? So Joseph Smith is the first prophet of the church. Okay. So Joseph Smith was called upon God to go restore the church because he he was trying to figure out which church was right. So he prayed to God. God had told him, you know, there is no true church because true church has fallen. And here, here is the second part of me that understood that, or, or that just felt like the church was wrong, is that here you have. God telling Joseph Smith that he has to restore the true church because it has fallen. But in the Book of Mormon, God gives the, or it's either God or Jesus gives the, um, he gives the apostles the keys to the kingdom, the keys to the church, right? Like the foundational resources to keep the true church alive. And he literally said himself, this is my true church. 
This is the church of my father, because I believe it was Jesus that gave the keys, right? He says, this is the true church, the true, the church of my father, and it is so strong that nothing can tear it down. Like, nothing can make this church fall, because it's the true church. But now you have, fast forward, Joseph Smith restoring the true church because it fell. So, that doesn't make sense. How did the true church, God's church, God, the almighty, powerful Lord, of the world, the creator created a church so strong it couldn't fall, but it fell. So did God <laughs> himself like intentionally make it fall? To, like, just, you know, amp up like Seems suspension? Like some yeah, 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 exactly. It, it doesn't make sense, right? So Joseph Smith, he is like the, they, they kind of coined him as this, uh, um, you know, pioneer of religion. You know, he, he restored the church he led all the the uh, Mormons through the different states to, you know, find faith, right? But he wasn't leading them through the different states. They were getting kicked out of all these states. You have a guy who comes in and is telling people about this religion and how it's right because he had been told so, right? And he had translated this book that nobody's seen. Nobody's seen the Book of Mormon besides him, right? So you're just like, you're like okay, well, was this book even real? You know, and he translated this book with a rock and a piece of glass in a hat. Really? So that doesn't make sense, right? And yeah, yeah. (laughs) and so, so none of it, none of it adds up. And then, and then, and then he's telling you that it's okay to marry minors and be polygamous, and people are like, "Well, that is that cannot be right." And then, of course, you know, he lands himself in jail because he was using his religious influence to run for president of the United States. Really? And in the Constitution of the United States, and today it's not like this, which is completely screwed, but in the United States Constitution, it says that there shall be a separation of church and state. It should not be one. Church and state, completely different. Our our forefathers were deists. They believed that there was a very powerful external force that creates life in the universe, but it does not influence the way that we live. It creates and it moves on, right? So they're telling us that we need to keep these two things separate. So when a guy like Joseph Smith comes and runs for president of the United States and uses his religious influence to get him to be president of the United States... And then once he becomes the president of the United States, it's obviously going to push religion on the United States. I mean, that's just treason. I mean, that's treason big time, right? Yeah. And so he gets thrown into jail, and then he he and his brother Hiram eventually get killed by a mob of angry people. Oh, wow. You know, because nobody agrees that what he's doing is right. But they don't teach you any of these any of these things when you're, when you're a Mormon, right? How did and, you personally learn about it if they didn't teach you? Um, through uh, through Mormon. Mormon historical documents. Wow. Like the church's own resources. I've heard of historians who've uncovered like like historical events that have been swept under the rug, hidden away, right? So that the like followers don't find out about these horrible things that happened in the past that have been swept under the rug. And this historian had found them. And his job, his job, his calling from God is to unveil all facts about the church. Whether they look good or bad. And so he laid out all these things and was like, hey, I found these things about the church. Um, and for some reason, they're just hiding over here and nobody knows about them, you know. 
so where do you want me to put them? You know? <laughs> and uh, a few days later, he got a letter in the mail, uh, a notice of him being excommunicated from the church. Wow. And, of course, he was like, what? I was doing my calling. I was doing my calling to God. But they excommunicated him because it was a risk of him releasing all these secrets. So then, at that point, he's like, well, damn. This can't be true. So then he was, like, telling everybody that it was wrong. And there was another guy who wrote the, uh, he wrote the CES letters. Here you had a guy who was a very religious guy, always went to church every Sunday, had a lot of belief in the church, was an active member, constantly contributing to his community. You know, like, if you could think of, like, the perfect Mormon, this was the guy. You know, Jeremy, this is the guy. And now he has these doubts about the church. So he writes this long, or, or, or he writes this email to um, the chief education something, or like, you know, or the, uh, the church education system director. That's what it was. Church education system director. So, because somebody had told him, hey, I know you have these questions about the church. You should email the uh, CES director and ask him these questions because he knows everything about the church everything about the education the history everything that's his job right and if and if you have any questions he'll be able to find you the answer so he was like great so he emailed the cds director he said yeah any questions you have send me it send it my way and you know we'll talk about it and he's like okay great so he wrote this massive letter this massive letter addressing joseph smith's polygamy addressing um some of the really like crazy you know history historical events that have been kind of covered up you know some of the controversies here and there about certain things and he sent this email to the director and he never got an answer never got a response but then yet a few months later when he started kind of prying about it he got a letter in the mail was excommunication notice right and he had actually gone to court um against the church uh, and was able to get him his, his name pulled away from the records um, on his own terms. So he wasn't labeled as excommunicated. But so after that experience, it shattered his religious view. I mean, here you have a guy who believed in the church, but he just had questions about things that didn't make sense, that weren't being addressed. And so he was like, oh my God, the church cannot be true if they're just going to excommunicate me like that. You know, there's something that's fishy about this. So he had published these letters, and and those letters probably a very big influence on why I left the church too. And I and I urge some of my Mormon friends to to read the letters, but of course they're not going to read them, right? Because the church tells them not to read anti-Mormon literature, even though it's not anti-Mormon literature. It's here's a Mormon guy who wrote these letters when he was a Mormon, asking questions about things that do not add up about his own religion and so you know i urge if there's any mormons that listen to this podcast and are curious go out and read them you know i don't want i don't want you to to leave the church or or, you know not be faithful and have a relationship with god but go read these letters because you might be following men over your true lord you know yeah and again if your if your faith is you truly like believe in your faith and feel like it's strong then you shouldn't be afraid to read this stuff you know, because right. if your faith is strong, then I guess you you know you'll stay in the church. Exactly. After reading. You know, but I what I try to tell people, I'm like, you know, I think the biggest thing about the church is that people are following men, they're not following God. 
So, and, and basically what I mean by that is they're they're allowing the profits of the church who are being paid. Their, your 10% income is going into the church <clears throat> as tithing. The church is worth $200 billion last time I checked. It might be more. Yeah. And keep in mind that they pay no taxes. They don't pay taxes to anybody because they're religion. They don't pay taxes. So they, they're, they're worth $200 billion. And 100%, they are paying their prophets. They're paying their apostles. They're paying a lot of the higher up uh, men in the church. And it's been, it's been verified because there's been leaked paychecks to um, Gordon B. Hinckley and President Monson um, of, you know, like almost $200,000, $300,000 a year just to be the prophet. When in the church they say, oh, well, the prophets don't get paid. The church leaders don't get paid. But they're being paid. They're being paid and you're being lied to, you know. So um, don't follow men. Follow God, you know. If you're a Mormon listening to this, you know, I think the church is corrupt, not the, you know, religion or, you know, Christianity, you know. If you want to believe in Christianity, go for it. Me, personally, my religious views now kind of move into that second part of your question. Um, I consider myself agnostic. You know, I'm very open to the belief of there being a God or being a superior being. But I also am very sided with deism, like I mentioned our forefathers were. You know, um, deism is a very interesting concept because it's basically saying that um, with the universe being created by by a very external force that might not even be a man. I, I find it interesting that everybody's so quick to think that, you know, God is a man. You know, well, or that God is even like a human, right? Or yeah, or that's even like an entity of some yeah. sort. You know, like so, God might just be this this powerful being, right? Uh, the powerful being who goes out and creates, right? And if you think of how, of how vast space is and how constant, constantly it, is, it, is, it like expands, we with the science know that it's constantly expanding, constantly being created. So. What type of being is powerful enough to go out and just create something and then create something else and create something else and create all these galaxies, but then give each galaxy 100% of its attention? You know? That seems a little complicated, right? So maybe it is powerful enough to do that, right? But what I also think is, why would that being have to do that if it is that powerful? Because if I'm a powerful being... I can create Earth. I can create a timeline for Earth. I can create who's going to exist on Earth. I'm going to create the actions of each of these people, right? I can create all that. I'm going to know what happens. So there's really no need for me to interfere with the actions that are currently going on because I created those actions. Those actions are mine. I know what's happening. This conversation, this podcast that we're doing right now, Strad, has already been determined. Right? It's already a factor that's already been accounted for. And so, like, I kind of have that belief of, like, you know, I'm not hearing back for God because maybe, maybe this is all God, you know? I'm not saying that we're God, but, you know, like, it, it's the life on this planet, I feel like, is too complicated for us to even understand. I feel like there's, there's a, a point, in, a wall in which we hit, in which we cannot see past what the reality of like the universe is. They say, they, they, the scientists have said that it is like that. The plane of existence that we're on is like that. It's like a staircase, right? 
if you're right here on this stair step and more complicated planes of existence are up here, we can't see unless we get up to that level, right? But we can only get up to like here, you know? So we're never going to see over that horizon and see what's on the other side, you know, because it's beyond our capabilities. It's, it's beyond our elements and our, you know, physical state. Yeah, I always think about that when it comes to consciousness studies and like philosophy about it, because I'm curious if we'll ever truly get to understand the true nature of consciousness, because because like the only thing you can really prove about consciousness is that you're yourself is conscious. Like I like I like to say like you know it could be that I'm the only conscious being that exists and you're just a manifestation in my head, right? Same to you. Right? <coughs> exactly. So the yeah. only thing you could really empirically prove is that you yourself are conscious, and then anything above that is like kind of speculative, right? And it just it makes me wonder. Like there's this idea of panpsychism, right? Where which is every piece of matter has some level of consciousness and it just like as matter accumulates the levels of consciousness get higher and higher which i think is an interesting idea but the is, yeah. annoying thing about it is i just don't see how we could ever be able to prove that you know so i right while your idea of like the staircase right and only being able to see what at your level is it's like kind of saddens me a bit but at some point i think i think it's kind of true there's always because you can always ask like i think about this with fundamental physics right you can always get to okay well at the bottom there's like atoms and stuff and then well what are atoms made out of they're made out of quarks blah 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 blah. but you can always ask like what is below what is below so the fact that you can always ask that right kind of proves your point in some sense that right if there's a what if if there's a what what is below what is ahead you know all we know is that people die their body now becomes deceased. Um, their energy has left them. But where does it go? If energy cannot be created nor destroyed, it has to go somewhere, right? Yeah. You know? And whether that's back into just the physical nature of the earth or whatnot, maybe there's something more, you know? There's just something that, like, you know, we, we don't remember where we came from, right? But maybe when we move on, we might not even remember this, but we could probably move on to something completely different. Yeah, you know, and if that's how life works, that's fascinating. Well, go, going on top of that, something I think you could a- answer, which might be actually really helpful to a lot of viewers that maybe grew up super religious, but now they just don't believe in it as much, and they want to have a more agnostic belief system, but they fear that a lot of the things they get in life come from religion. Maybe it's community, maybe it's sense of spirituality. A lot of it is just a sense of meaning, because you know, a lot of people might go agnostic or even atheist. And just think, well, what is the meaning of life if there's no God, there's no afterlife, things like that. So coming from a position where you were fully ingrained in a certain religion and then you moved on to a more agnostic belief, how do you think personally that switch has affected you? And how do you get the benefits you did have from religion without actually believing in the religion? That's a great question. So uh, moving on to like my beliefs now. I feel like I still I, I, I feel like I still carry a, a portion of the church with me because um, it's taught me good values. It's taught me how to be, you know, a, a, a good man, you know, and how to be um, good to my family, good to my friends, you know, how to treat my neighbor, you know, and, and how to just morally be good. Um, and I feel like that it's also taught me um, a lot about having dedication towards a specific thing and so being agnostic my dedication is going to be towards me now you know 
so I've kind of turned that that focus away from God and really I focus that energy towards me and I'm at this stage in my life where um, I don't have the same resources and support um, that the Mormon church has given me but I can still find that resource and support through other people or through other groups and you know and I feel like one of the biggest things that really kind of got me through leaving the church initially was I still had a good base of friends and, and people in choir that were around me. Although, you know, a lot of the Mormon people in those groups had distanced themselves from me. I don't blame you. No worries. Um, uh, you know, it's, I still have that support of people because God can be very, um, you know, it can be a very supportive concept for a lot of people, you know, and you remove that, you know, and you, and you distance yourself from your family right because they might not have that same belief that's the saddest part you know is now you're you're not really being supported by your family because they think that your choice is wrong so that's tough right and so now you're not really being supported by your friends because that was wrong you know or because or because they think that you are believing the wrong thing so say that everybody in your circle is now basically against you they're all gone and i mean that kind of happened to me you know i mean not not my family so much because our family kind of left together right I mean, I had, um, you know, I had uh, the President Romney, you know, for the Green Valley State, you know, he was telling, he was telling other members of the church that they need to stay away from me because, or stay away from our family because we were tre- preaching uh, fal- false truths or whatever, or something like that, you know, basically like we're trying to deconvert. Um, so I lost a lot of people, but what I I want viewers to to listen to and keep in mind is that whether it's family or friends or, you know, peers or, you know, people that are close to you that you feel like are a big supporting factor, if they are not going to be there for you in the long run, you know, or they're not going to be able to support you in a positive way and they're doing nothing but damage to you, don't be afraid to cut them off. I mean, because really everybody's always talking about how the world, like, we all live on this world, and we all work together, and we all got to be, you know, positive towards each other and raise each other up. But at the end of the day, the person that you think about the most, whether you think it's right or not, is always going to be you. It's always going to be you. So you want to make sure that you have people in your life that are going to be supportive of your goals and supportive of your religious views, you know. And uh, I think I found people like that. Strad, you're definitely one of them, you know. Thanks. I, you know, but I, I still have a good chunk of people who are religious that support me and what I want to do. And I think that if you can go out and find people who are truly good, truly understand who you are and can basically back, you know what, I, I don't agree that you left the church, but I feel like I know you enough that I'm in full support of whatever you want to do. Those are good people to have around. And, and that's what you should really be focusing on finding people who aren't going to be judgmental towards you. I think a lot of Mormonism uh, really makes people judgmental. They might, they may not understand it, but I think, um, you know, they, they get really judgmental, you know, their, their kids leave the church. I, I remember talking to, um, uh, you know, and he was talking about the painful, uh, you know, emotions and stuff he went through when his family basically disowned him. You know, when he left the church, you know, and was, you know, coming out as gay, 
you know, it was really hurtful for him, you know, because I think that they don't understand the harm that they do by disagreeing. And, and that's yeah. really, you know, if, if your family isn't going to be able to be open-minded to understand that the church has influenced them to be hateful towards you, then they're not good to be around in general. Yeah, I really like the idea of just understanding, right? Because I think the best type of people that are religious are the ones who understand that, like, I grew up in a family that believed in Mormonism, right? Or LDS or whatever you want to call it, right? So a person, if I was born into a family that instead believed in Islam, I would much, it's very likely I would have agreed with the doctrines of Islam rather than of Mormonism. So having that understanding that a lot of your beliefs are probably based on your environment and that the people that end up not believing in Mormonism or any other type of religion, a lot of it might also be because of their environment. They just have a different mindset. Just having that understanding feels just very important because you can still be friends with these people. You can still interact with these people without having to force your belief on them because you understand that you guys just have different mindsets and different environments that you grew up in. Right, exactly. So to just kind of like leave a final note for anybody out there who's questioning their religion or trying to figure out what the next step is, you know, maybe you're lost. Don't give up on yourself, you know. Focus on yourself. For me, I, uh, you know, I'm still... Still trying to figure things out. It's really, it's really hard. I mean, it's a complicated subject. When you don't have it figured out for you already, like I initially did being Mormon, now like I got to figure it out, which is the crazy thing. Is I'm like, wow, now I got to find religion, which is I always get props to people who are converts who weren't religious and then they get baptized and they believe in the religion. That's awesome because obviously they found something that they agree with and and they found themselves. Um, but for me, you know, I I'm, I'm still out there. I'm still searching. But I still, some, sometimes I still pray, you know, but not to God. It's more in a, in a form of um, affirmation, you know, not necessarily praying to anybody, but I'm praying for things to go right in my life. I'm praying to find the answers to my problems, you know, but I think here, here on the earth, you know, really the only person who can help us find those answers are ourselves. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. So we've been talking for almost two hours now. I think it has been a very useful conversation. First half, if you're interested in finance and stuff like that, second half, religion, all that stuff. So I think we're going to wrap it up soon. So I like to ask one question at the end of each podcast. Same question because I like to see like the different perspectives people have and like what they say. So the question is, what is something in your life that you have learned that has impacted your life in a significant way? Something that I have learned that has impacted my life in a significant way. That's a great question. I think um, something I've learned is got to be that you never truly understand yourself or others. And it's a very hard thing to master and understand. We are, we are such complicated beings that we overcomplicate life day-to-day emotions and just being here um i think that like really what's mellowed me out as a person was when i understood that we're here in this moment and you just have to make the best of it and really understand that you are never going to understand the things that are going on so don't stress yourself out overthinking things 
or stressing yourself out thinking what others think. I think a big problem I had a lot of the time when I was in high school was I was way, way too worried about what other people were thinking. Not not really like what they thought of me, but like, you know, I was worried about harming people, you know, emotionally or like, you know, hurting people's feelings or, or making enemies, you know. And so I really adapted my way of being a person to like other people's way. And I feel like when I realized that, you know what, you're going to hurt people. You're going to hurt people. You're not going to understand people. You're not going to understand how people feel. You know, you're not always going to be the perfect listener. You're not always going to have the same views as people. Like, you're never going to understand other people. You're never going to fully understand yourself. So don't let that get in your way. Go out and just, like, relieve that stress and just, like, go with the flow. You know, try your best to understand yourself. You know, go explore any curiosity that you have about anything. You know, and don't be afraid to hold yourself back from things that may scare you, but also don't be afraid to push yourself through things that scare you. You know, so I know that was kind of a complicated answer, but, you know, that's probably like the biggest lesson. If I could look back at all my years, the biggest lesson I've learned, you know, is don't get caught up in what other people are doing. Focus on what you're doing. Try to understand yourself, but also understand that you're not going to fully understand anything. I think that's actually a very beautiful lesson because it's kind of freeing in a way where, now that you understand that you can't understand everything, right, about people, what they're thinking, how to make the perfect interaction with them and make them feel great about you, right? The fact that you know you can't understand all of that means you can spend a little less time stressing about it. And obviously, like, you know, you don't want to just hurt people's feelings and be super brass, but you it right. gives you more room to just be yourself without having to constantly think about how it affects other people. Yeah, because I think, I think my brother, Jack, is definitely a person who way overcomplicates things and you know really just dives in way too deep into things um and i see that that stresses him out a lot you know and i think that a lot of people do that especially in 2022 we're only left with nothing but our thoughts you know thoughts can be a really powerful tool you know i really love having conversations like these or just like really getting into my thoughts you know but there's a certain point in which things get too complicated that i just gotta understand that's beyond me well, I also really enjoyed this conversation. I think it'd be really useful to anyone watching. It's definitely useful to me. I really appreciate you being on, Scott. Of course. Hope thanks to for have having you me. on again. Yeah, I am happy to come on whenever. Awesome. Thank you.